Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Mindfulness-based cognitive therapy was to set up situations which, in which people could recognise when sad mood came, they could see the sadness just as sadness. It's a passing emotion. Sadness still comes. We, we can't ban sadness, but it doesn't get locked into this cascade of negative thinking. After a course of MBCT, when a suicidal thought comes and it's not associated with sadness and despair, people are more likely to say, "Ah." Oh, I recognise that. You know, that's my old pattern of thinking and can let it go. This uncoupling of the thoughts and the feelings make them both more workable. And the evidence is that for people who have the worst history of depression, the mindfulness works actually better for them than, than for many others. And the science is really fascinating. What's happened in the last 10 years is mind-blowing. You know, being mindful is not difficult. Remembering to be mindful is really Welcome to the Inspired Evolution. I'm your humble host, Amrit Sandhu, and you're tuning in to a conscious conversation designed to help you grow. Our mission here is simple. It's for you to live your purpose, live your best life, live the life you love. This podcast is sponsored by Enthusiasm for Life, by great creation itself. To keep the good vibes flowing for myself and yourself, do us a solid. Subscribe to the Inspired Evolution podcast on YouTube, the home of the Inspired Evolution podcast. Now sit back, relax, open your mind, open your heart to this conversation and stay inspired. Keep evolving. Hey there, Inspired Spirits. At the time of this recording, only 94% of you that are actually returning to watch a second or a third or a fourth video here on the Inspired Evolution podcast are actually subscribed. I can't tell you how much it genuinely helps everything we're trying to achieve with promoting positivity in the world through your subscription. Every time you hit subscribe, it helps us grow the platform. It lets guests that want to come onto the show know that you know it is worth their time to take the time out to carve out a conversation like the ones that you're enjoying here on the Inspired Evolution podcast. My personal commitment to you is as the show grows, 
you know, more and more quality, more and more conversations, richer and richer things will flow around here. That is my absolute commitment to you, to be completely transparent as we grow. And when we finally get to that 100,000 subscriber mark, currently we do two episodes a week. I'm looking forward to getting us to about three episodes a week so we can really keep the juju going and flowing at an even greater level. And all of that is enabled by you taking the time to hit subscribe, hit that bell notification. So if you can, please take a moment, take a moment, come on, take one six six six, <laughs> hit subscribe and hit that bell notification icon. It helps so much more than I can say. Thank you so much. Welcome back to the Inspired Evolution. And we have with us today, Inspiring Our Evolution, Mark Williams. How are you there? I'm fine. Thanks so much for having me. It is such a pleasure to have you here. For those tuning in to Mark for the first time, he's the former director of the Oxford Mindfulness Centre. Um, along with colleagues, he developed the mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. And honestly, deep in there, the intention was its prevention around major depression. And for those that have followed the podcast for a hot minute, you guys know that I've had some challenges with depression way back in my past. And yeah, the way I like to share it from stages, mindfulness actually reconstituted my life. And so following his work, well, one of his, he's written quite a few books, there, but his, his best-selling book is um, Mindfulness, Finding Peace in a Frantic World. And I loved this book because it actually helped me just affirmed a lot of things um, about, yeah, just the world that we live in and also, you know, finding ourselves in the world that we live in and just also all the noise and the distractions that are potentially present from us, um, yeah, that are basically detracting from our experience or in the way of our experience. I'm probably saying it all the wrong ways, Mark, <laughs> and I'm sure we could uh, get you articulated a little bit better. But, um. Maybe let's start there, finding peace in a frantic world. Maybe you can describe the frantic world to us a little bit and why peace is so important. Well, the nature of the world is, um, is pretty fast-paced and it also stimulates a lot of storytelling in our mind about what's going on, a lot of interpretation of what's going on. But it has to be said that many of the meditations we use in mindfulness, most of them, of course, are derived from two and a half thousand years ago from a Buddhist tradition. And they haven't changed that much. The idea of just seeing things as changeable rather than just getting hooked into your thoughts. And it's really interesting that although we think that this is a unique thing, it's also worth remembering that these were developed a long time ago. So maybe there's always been pressure. There's always been a sense ever since we used language, started to use language as a species. And then we, the language became part of the language inside our heads as well. There was always the tendency then to get caught and to see our inner language as being true, necessarily true. And that's where the problem starts. The language is so important. It's so vital. We can go back into time. We can go forward into the future. Um, and much of what language does is really helpful, but then occasionally it backfires and starts saying things that aren't true, but they feel right because we feel because we feel sad, down, despairing, whatever. So I think the sense of being able to find a way of standing back from the pressure of our own brooding, worrying, and stuff like that is where mindfulness starts. The, the ability to decenter, we say, to stand back. 
it's calming, it's grounding, but then lots of things are calming and grounding. Um, what mindfulness gives us is that extra thing to use the calming, to have a place to stand, to look at the mind coming and going and treating it as mental events that we can let go of if we need to. Yeah, I my favourite definition of mindfulness is actually yours, which is it's um, knowing what's going on inside and outside of ourselves moment to moment. And the thing I love the most about that is the definition is so simple and yet at face value you can appreciate that, oh yeah, you know, it's just being present to what's going on inside and what's going on outside one moment to the next. Very easy to explain. When you go to actually exercise it, <laughs> the simplicity sometimes just ends there. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, it is. It's, there are all sorts of confusing things in there. Like, for example, does this mean I should never remember things? Or does this mean I should never plan the future? But, of course, you can remember, but knowing that you're remembering, you can plan the future knowing you're planning. And that's very different from reliving the past and getting caught up in it, entangled in it, or pre-living the future and not realising that you're, you're basically planning and looking to the future now. So um, uh, you can any, the, the present moment can encompass anything. It's not trying to exclude anything. It's not trying to exclude thoughts about the past or thoughts about yourself or thoughts about other people. It's actually trying to hold them in a larger space. And that means that it involves calming, yes, but also insight, this, this wisdom idea. And with calm and wisdom comes a sort of kindness to the mind. So those are the three sort of the, the, the three pillars on which mindfulness rests. Calmness and stability on the one is one, insight or wisdom is the second, kindness and friendliness to the, to the body and mind and then out to others is the third pillar. And all the mindfulness practices are there to cultivate, to deepen and to strengthen those, those, those pillars. I love that. Um, I'm trying to find a way to dovetail into the conversation around when you started to realise that this was something for that could support us with depression. Um, now, I, I did say I'd share this with you, so I'll try and keep it brief. But um, basically, I had some really external, like, well, internal and external calamities in my life, which led to me finally coming to the realisation that I'd been struggling with depression for six years, and I ended up, you know, as an adolescent young male sitting opposite a psychologist, and she basically diagnosed with me, diagnosed me with major depression. Touch wood. And at the time... It was a double-edged sword, I remember, because when she said it, part of me was like, oh. But another part of me was like, oh, because it was almost like this is that thing that everybody has talked about, you know, and I've heard that, you know, people struggle with this and there is a label for how I've been feeling and going with things. I know some people say the labels don't help them, but for me, actually, it was um, it was somewhat of a relief because it felt like maybe this is the engineer in me, like there was a path forward. Now, in her infinite wisdom, um, she uh, offered me SSRIs and 
full asterisks before we dive into this conversation. I do believe there are people, and maybe get your thoughts on this as well, that there are people that, you know, the chemicals and the the pills do help, right? Um, taking antidepressants, you know, absolutely. Um, but for myself, um, yeah, the psychologist prescribed me the antidepressants. And it was actually my GP who was working in tandem with my, um, my psychologist who just after I'd seen my psychologist, she would check in with me every few sessions. And um, one of the pieces of advice my GP gave me, she was this surprise, surprise, Thai lady. Um, she gave me this mindfulness exercise. And I remember when she gave it to me, and I'm almost embarrassed to admit this, but I've admitted it a few times on the podcast now, so here we go again. Um, when she gave me the mindfulness exercise part, she was like, you know, I'm just going to write down this mindfulness exercise. Um, she, she didn't really call it a mindfulness exercise. She said, here's a breathing exercise, um, and it can be really helpful for you, um, given that, you know, you've got major depression. And maybe because I was an adolescent, hot-blooded young male <laughs> it was just I was you know breathing really like breathing you know and there was this, it was more than a scoff there was almost like a I was almost uh yeah I was somewhat indignant actually I was like I've been struggling with depression for like six years and you're telling me to breathe like listen lady I've been breathing <laughs> you know I'm alive I'm sitting opposite you right now and so I'm embarrassed to admit that now <laughs> but that was literally the vibe I carried and um you know we walked I walked away went home and I remember taking my first antidepressant and it was amazing you know for the, the next four hours I proceeded to do things that I hadn't been able to achieve in a long time clean the house da 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 and I felt really upbeat felt positive and now I know a little bit about serotonin and, you know, can imagine just exactly what was going on in my head at the time. And it was fantastic until it wore off. And then when it wore off, I had this real sort of trepidation because it was like this sense of, oh, I'm not sure I want to live on this roller coaster of going up and down and up and down and up and down. Now, some part of me and maybe it was a spirit I'm not sure what it was it was a spiritual thing but I picked up the box and I literally just threw it in the bin and I was like that doesn't seem right for me and it was my only lifeline at the time so I'm quite surprised when I look back at myself that I did that and then subsequently I was in an environment which was anxiety provoking for me which was university back in those days and I was walking down the corridors of university and um one of the things that happened was as I was clearing out my locker I was walking down the corridor and I started feeling what now I can label as anxiety, but at the time I didn't know that. It was just I started feeling really tight, queasy, and I picked up my phone to call someone just to have a chat. I didn't realize that was one of my coping mechanisms at the time. And on the back side of my phone, I'd accidentally, well, accidentally, by some grace of God, I'd put her post-it note with the breathing exercise under a clear cover on my phone. And as I pulled out my phone, I was staring at the at the breathing exercise, and I. I still remember the moment as if it was yesterday. Um, and I just went, oh, okay. Breathing in. One. Breathing out. Two. Breathing in. Three. And for the life of me, Mark, as every breath started to happen, the walls were moving back out away from closing in on me a meter it felt every time and I just stopped like I 
can't completely remember. I just stopped in my tracks. Like I was absorbing the moment for like 30 to seconds to a minute. And I was just sitting there just going, what? And I just became, a, from there became this whole journey around mindfulness. Um, and for the grace of God, mindfulness, like I said, reconstituted my life when it came to who was depressed and how I learned to navigate my life. So that to sort of uh, invite you into sort of sharing, you know, that was my awareness around, hey, I'm struggling with major depression and this mindfulness thing actually really helped me, but it's really hard to explain to people. And sometimes it seems a bit nonchalant as well because it's like, hey, like struggle with depression and counting my breaths helped me. And people are like, mm. <laughs> you know, I'm sure there's a demographic out there that actually needs um, medical support. But it is my truth. Like it really helped. So when did you start to realize or what was going on in your world that, you know, because I don't think it's an intuitive sort of hit to go, oh, yeah, breathing, mindfulness, bringing your awareness into the present moment, antidote to depression. How did you get there? Well, when you think about what you were doing in that situation, uh, the fear would have been creating all sorts of thoughts, body sensations, um, all sorts of <clears throat> connections between mind and body based on the idea of avoidance, need to get out, fight and flight, and so on. And uh, one of the things that breathing can do, and which clearly worked for you in that situation, is to not just relax the body, that's very important by itself, but almost take you into a different mode, mode of mind, a whole different configuration in which this tight loop between the, the body saying, quick, get out, and the mind saying, yeah, yeah, yeah I, need to, I need to get out, is, um, is interrupted for a moment. Um, uh, and it can happen because you change your thinking or it can happen because you change the body. And who knows exactly what it was that enabled you to sort of switch from a mode of sort of being driven, which is like a contraction. When you're driven, that that's the attention is very focused. So I noticed you, it felt like the walls were being able to move back. That's a quite a common feeling of feeling more spacious, of just having more sense. Uh, so sometimes even the fear and the thoughts and the body is still rattling around as it was, but somehow with more space, it's not taking up the whole, the whole space in your mind because it feels like there's more room around the edges of it. Um, so that's, that's, one, that's one thing that's really important. You change something going on in the mind and sort of interrupt the, um, the relentless flow of, of panic and anxiety and stuff like that. Now, that's important because Although we experience anxiety and depression as being a, a sort of a continuous stream, in fact, it's best to think of it as a series of very fast cycles, like a screen that ref refreshes at a certain rate per minute, rates per second. per second. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And if you think of the mind as actually like a, a refresh, 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 then there are lots of tiny, tiny moments that are escaping us in normal life that actually could interrupt that sense of, of, of the cycle. If, if the mind is constantly refreshing, constantly recycling, then there are many, many times when you can interrupt, but we don't notice them. We think that it's all relentless because the mind is very good at making 
a data stream into some con- something look look that looks and feels continuous, linear. Now, yeah, yeah. When when we got into mindfulness, it was because my colleagues John Teasdale, Zendel Siegel, and I had been asked to find a way of preventing depression. Uh, first of all, to maintain people when they'd done cognitive therapy, when we knew that cognitive therapy worked pretty well to get people well, and but nobody really understood why it worked so well and, and why it kept people well, even when they'd finished the cognitive therapy. <clears throat> and we thought, look, if we're going to have to prevent depression, we need to find out what's the magic ingredient of cognitive therapy. And it turns out that everybody thought that the magic ingredient was this, but actually it turned out to be something different. It wasn't that people changed their beliefs in their negative thinking, um, but they begin to see their thoughts from another perspective as just depressing thoughts coming and going. So, you know, if you, when you're depressed, think, I'm useless, I'm a failure, I've got no friends, what a cognitive therapist, a good cognitive therapist will do, will say, well, you know, this thought, I've got no friends, it may be true, or it might be your depression speaking. How could we find out? What evidence could we bring to bear? And you might say, well, I haven't spoken to Bill for, for weeks and weeks. He's obviously ghosting me. He's obviously don't want to talk to me. And you say, OK, that's possible. He may well be. How could you find out between now and next time? Now, of course, then you say, well, I suppose I could phone him. And that's taking a risk, but you could phone him. So, And then you come back next time and say, well, what happened? You say, well, I phoned him and we've, we've, we've arranged to meet next week. So now the purpose of that is not just to get you back in touch with your friends, though that's a very good outcome for therapy, but also to begin to challenge your negative belief that was in control, which was, I have lost all my friends. And gradually you begin to think, when you next say, I've lost all my friends, there's just a chance you'll say, oh, I've checked that one out. It's not necessarily true. And cognitive therapy used to believe that the critical thing in cognitive therapy was you actually used to believe this 100%, now you don't believe it, or believe it only 10%, and that's where the therapy lies. And we know antidepressants do that, but when you stop taking antidepressants, the depression tends to come back eventually. So that can't be the reason why cognitive therapy worked. And we gradually found out from lots of research by ourselves and others, that what you're doing in cognitive therapy is that when that thought comes up again, it's not that you, you, you don't believe it anymore, that's true, but it's that you see it as a thought. You say, ah, oh, I recognize that thought. That isn't me. You know, I am not my thoughts. That's just a mental event. Now, if that's what cognitive therapy is doing, if that's the magic ingredient, then maybe you could teach that to people even when they weren't depressed, even when between episodes of depression. But how would you teach it? Because, you know, when you're not depressed, you haven't got lots of negative thoughts. You, you don't believe yourself to have no friends and that you're a failure and so on. So here's the thing. If you meditate for more than a few seconds, you will get thinking. You will get planning. You get daydreaming. You get your mind wanders. You know, you think to the past. You think to the future. Oh, I should have bought bread yesterday. Oh, my gosh. You know, uh, or I meant to send that email. Shall I stop the meditation or shall I carry on with it? In other words, you get a lot of stuff to work on. And although they're not very negative, mostly, you get lots and lots of learning trials of going, ah, oh, there's a thought. Okay, back to the bread. Oh, there's another one. Emails. Oh, my email thoughts, my planning thoughts, my thinking thoughts, my and then 
you know, because that happens a million times during ten minutes sit. Bombardment. Yeah, the word bombardment is literally like in the back of my head as you're describing. (laughs) Every time you get bombarded, that means the meditation is able to work because most people think, oh, if I get bombarded with thinking, meditation isn't working. But actually, that's your opportunity. That's the that's the equivalent of your gym equipment. You know, you go to the gym to learn how to 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 get your muscles going. Well, uh, in meditation, the gymnasium equipment comes to you. And your gymnasium equipment, what you're training with, are your thoughts. So whatever the thoughts are, if you can see it coming and, ah, hello, here's another thought, it's a, it's a planning thought or it's a worry thought or whatever. And in that moment, you label it, just notice it coming, and very often a thought will dissolve quite quickly. Thought doesn't last very long unless we seize on it and start thinking it and 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 start entangling ourselves in it and worrying about it a thought is a bit like a shooting star it comes and goes but we tend to grab it and 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 start another thought stream so mindfulness is about not clearing your mind but sitting there calming with these breath exercises yes there's calmness but then there's an insight which is, I am not my thoughts. I am not my thoughts. Thoughts come, thoughts go. But I don't have to believe them all. I have to look at them. I have to notice them. Some of them might be telling the truth. You know, if you get the thought, I've left the pan on, it's going to burn, you're not going to sit there going, oh, you know, I've left the pan on just a thought. You're going to take action, right? But at least you've got the choice. At least you've got the choice. And that's the critical thing. And out of that comes a sense of kindness to the mind. And so you've, you've developed calmness, you've developed insight, you've developed friendship towards your mind. The kindness piece for myself, um, and I love that, because that was one of the, the things that I continue to marvel at. Because as you described, we, we there's this natural propensity. It's like, okay, I'm sitting down to meditate. And it's like, okay, cool, clear thought. And then it's like, no. Nah, there's another thought there's another thought and there's this natural desire for it to be oh my god but every face of the buddha i've stared at has been like he looks so clear on his face that surely there must be clarity inside but yeah the the realization that actually therein lies like you said the gym those are the reps you know and actually learning to cherish the thought because every time it comes on through it's providing me the opportunity to go "Uh uh-huh and i can see you wanting to suck me in (laughs) it's like and coming back to just recognizing the thought, you know, and that being the gold in the practice. Absolutely, yep. absolutely. And actually, it is practice. That's why we call it practice. It's a training for those bits of daily life where we might be in a frustrating queue in a supermarket or in a, caught up in a traffic jam or, or somebody may say something that would press our buttons. And at that moment, that's when we're going to need the training we've done because at that moment, there are going to be a lot of thoughts and if there's just a little space around them, you're less likely to be very reactive. And one of the other things that I think doesn't get enough airtime is, because I coach people, and you can see people that don't necessarily have a practice with mindfulness, um, they there's a few things that happen with them identifying with the thinking and the thoughts that come through. Because one of the challenges I noticed the most is especially for A-type personalities that are really out there to try to achieve something, which naturally that's probably 
you know, being a coach, you sort of generally see people that are more achievement oriented, I guess. Um, that's an occupational hazard. But um, yeah, the, I find that they have this relationship whereby they tend to associate themselves with their thoughts, but then also there is this beating myself up for not taking action on every single thought that I've had that could have potentially been in the direction and the trajectory of me amounting to the success that I had created um, in my head as a story. And the interesting thing I find, and I don't think this is a piece that I don't think gets enough airtime, is when you develop a relationship with, oh, like those are my thoughts and it's just another thought, you know, um, sure, some of them are inspired and some of them are less inspired, um, but those are just my thoughts. You also don't have to bite the hook, if you will, um, of every every thought and its journey to the nth degree to where it could potentially take you. You know, like I could do this in my business and I could implement that and I, I could go with this direction, you know, I could take my kids here. And it's like, yeah, absolutely, you could absolutely do it all. But if you develop a relationship with mindfulness you end up in a space I have found where yep that's just another thought and you know if I actually have a bit of a thing where it's like if it's persisting over a few like a few set like over time potentially it deserves my attention Um, but if it's just an inspired thought in the moment it might just be something that's just a hit of inspiration maybe I was watching something on YouTube or watching something on television and it just sort of came through I read a book and it could have been a great thought, but I don't need to uproot so much of my mental capacity and bandwidth and delegate it to new said task or thought just because it sounds like a good idea. Um, yeah, just a, you mentioned space, spaciousness before, but I think the word I'm sort of um, honing around is discernment. It's, it's, it's offered me a greater level of discernment. I think discernment and a sense of choice. So it's not trying to stop you doing anything. You'll still have those skills for you. Uh, But often people come to a coach or to a mindfulness teacher because they're aware that they're not living their life to the full. That actually the the thoughts are not their servants anymore, but their master. And, and, And so they're looking for a little bit of freedom from the compulsion and the urgency. Um, One of the things that we do in our most recent work is to teach a meditation that involves saying to yourself on an out-breath, no action needed right now. Um, and the reason for that, no action needed at this moment on an outbreath, is that we now know that the way we understand each other, the way we understand books and texts that we read and things that we hear on podcasts and, and so on, is that as the language stream comes into our own consciousness, we, our own mind si- understands by simulating the actions that we're hearing, the verbs, the nouns, and everything like that. So, you know, even if I said to you, the bus is at the bus stop and it's about to go, you're already understanding that by knowing your what you do with buses. You get on them, they drive off and this sort of thing. So um, if we looked in, into, into your brain now, it would be just a little bit of action associated with buses, just firing off and then, then in, it quickly inhibiting. So we actually, even in just understanding things in our writing and our reading, the brain is really active in planning actions. And therefore, when we want to do something that is a wise action, it's very noisy. The, the wise action doesn't easily emerge. And one way of actually letting go of all the noisy actions that the brain has actually got just 
activated but isn't needed is to actually say on an out-breath, no action needed right now. And that just, it can really uh, calm things. And often people report their shoulders drop in an instant and they didn't even know that it was tense. But it's because even understanding what we're doing here is going to create actions. We just can't avoid it. You know, the, 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 and that's how we understand the world. So there are, I think it's sort of like choice is really important. Discernment, as you say, and choice so that people are not excluded from doing what they want to do, aligning with their values, but that the actions are also, the wise actions can emerge as a stronger signal against the noise of the, the overactive. And- Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yeah, and you've touched on something that is... Yeah, quite present for my awareness is I think the world, and you know, this comes back to the title of the book, The Frantic World, is a very way that, I don't want to demonise capitalism, there's many beautiful things about it, um, but also it's a very doing energy. It's doing, doing, doing. It's not really an energy that just encourages simply being. You know, you've got your nine to five, your six to six, you know, you've got to be doing something. It's like, hi. Uh, you know, nice to meet you. What do you do? <laughs> you know, it's it's the very next thing we ask people. Like, what do you do? Um, it's a real. It's you know this real. Um, it's impregnated into so much of society around us, but there is that juxtaposition to being and just being. And what I'm hearing is you're saying, you know, just allowing us to just drop the need for action. It's giving us permission also to to just be. Yeah. Yeah. And and that was at the heart of the MBCT program, Mindfulness-Based Cognitive Therapy for Depression. Because one of the things we, you know, we talk there about the difference between doing and being, the different modes. And doing mode is is perfectly fine for getting most of most of the things we need to be to be done. I mean, if you want to drive the car across town, take the car to the garage to have it fixed and so on, you've got to know where you are now, you've got to know your destination. I mean, you've got to use sort of sat-nav. If you don't use sat-nav, you use the sat-nav in your head, the natural sat-nav, which is, where's my current location? Where do I want to be? And am I closing the gap between where I am now and where I want to be? Okay. So you focus on the gap. And that works for getting things done in the world. It works for 99% of, of, of what you do. What the important thing there is, not that you sort of get rid of all the doing mode, 
but realize that that it that, that mode doesn't work for some things. I mean, the most obvious thing it doesn't work for is like getting to sleep at night. If you lie there going, I want to get to sleep, you know, I'm not asleep and I want to get to sleep. I'm not asleep and I want to get to sleep, you know, you probably know that doesn't really get you to sleep. So there's a very common example, a very common example where the doing mode of mind drives you, drives you crazy if you try to use that to get to sleep. Um, now, it turns out the doing mode of mind is not particularly good at the emotions either. If you're feeling sad right now, that's your current location. Your current location of your mood is sadness. Where you want to be is feeling happy. But if you say to yourself, I wish I was happy, you know how that feels? If you say, I wish I was happy, just say it three times and try it. I wish I was happier. I wish I was happier. I wish I was happier. Now how do you feel? You actually have just increased the gap that you hoped to close. So it's a bit like trying to get to sleep. The very, the, this doing mode, which works so well by focusing on where you are, where you want to be, and, the, and closing the gap, it doesn't work for your emotions. Uh, it doesn't work to say, where am I now? I'm happy. Where do I want to be? Happy. Right. That's the gap. Close it. Because it increases your distressed mood. It makes you feel more and more and more miserable. Nobody points it out that the reason why you feel more miserable after five minutes of doing that is because you're cycling round and round, doing something you hope will help. Because the doing mode normally helps. You the brain just can't get its mind around why it's not helping now. And because you're feeling worse, the doing mode redoubles its effort to help. It says, right, you're now feeling worse, quit, you know. So the doing mode is nothing wrong with it, but it's actually, it's volunteered for a job it can't do. And the essence of mindfulness-based cognitive therapy was to, to set up situations in, in which people could recognize that sooner so that they could, when sad mood came, they could see the sadness just as sadness. It's a passing emotion. And when, it's, when they feel themselves just starting to worry and ruminate about it, then you say, ah, look what I'm doing here. The doing mode is trying, well, thank you very much, doing mode, but I don't need you right now. You know? and, and that sense, and, and what we notice is after people have had a, a course, an eight-week course of MBCT, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, sadness still comes. You, you can't ban sadness, but it doesn't get locked into this cascade of negative thinking, and that's a critical thing. And then we did research on suicide and suicidal depression, and we found that the same thing happened there, that actually after a course of MBCT, people found that they sometimes got sad, they sometimes got suicidal, but unlike the past where these had become locked together so you both felt sad and suicidal at the same time which is very very toxic and dangerous what happens after this is sadness comes sometimes a, a, a suicidal thought might come sometimes but they don't lock together and so when a suicidal thought comes and it's not associated with sadness and despair people are more likely to say oh i recognize that you know that's my old pattern of thinking and can let it go and when sadness comes without suicidal thoughts say oh, i recognize that sadness I don't have to do anything about it because it'll go by itself. And this uncoupling of the thoughts and the feelings make them both more workable. And the evidence is that for people who have the worst history of depression, who've been depressed since they were teenagers, and often the very toxic things haven't happened to them, that the mindfulness works actually better for them than 
than for many others. It's true for me as well. So at this particular juncture, if you're up for it, would you be willing to guide us through potentially um, a mindfulness-based exercise that helps us navigate yeah. what you've been describing? Of course. Yeah, great. Of course. So if people are up for this now, they can't do it now because the situation isn't right. That's just to Yeah, like you're driving or something. Yeah, oh, just sure. come back yeah. to this bit and just Absolutely. skip over it and come back. Come to back it. to this bit. So um, if, you, if you can do it, you could close, close your eyes or lower your gaze. And if you feel the feet on the floor, if you put both feet flat on the floor, if that's convenient, and notice the sensations of the feet grounded on the floor and seeing if it's possible to, as your attention arrives in the feet, to notice the changing and fluxing sensations in the feet, the soles of the feet, toes, heels, tops of the feet. So both feet are now centre stage in awareness. And we're not looking for anything special to happen. This is seeing if it's possible to be alive to whatever sensations are going on right now in the feet. And if there's hardly anything to be felt, then that's fine. Your experience is your experience. So just register a blank. And then bring the same sense of curiosity to the sensations of breathing, the sensations that are created as you breathe in and out of the body. So you might notice sensations at the nose, nostrils, back of the throat, to the chest that moves slightly and to both the front and the back as you breathe in and out. And also right down in the abdomen, there's a shift in sensations often down around the belly as you breathe in and as you breathe out. See if that's true for you. And noticing where you feel the sensations most vividly of breathing in and breathing out. And resting here, resting your attention lightly in this one place for a few breaths. So you can choose now to stay with the breath or to go back to the feet or maybe hold both in awareness as you sit here. And the aim here is to notice moment by moment the raw physical sensations occurring in your body. And often some of them change quite rapidly, others stay a little longer, and see if you can be alive to this. See what's true for you. And from time to time you may notice that your mind wanders away from the sensations in the body. And if that happens to you, then it's not a mistake, that's what minds do. The mind is doing the best it can, trying to find things that 
in meaning to do, to find things to plan, remember the past, plan the future. That's its job. So it's not a mistake. So when the mind wanders, just acknowledge where it went. Maybe even thanking the mind for, for doing its job. And then very slowly, very slowly, there's no rush, escorting your attention back to where you had intended it to be, in the feet or the breath or a combination of both. Sometimes the mind is very restless. The body is agitated and thoughts just seem to bombard the mind. When that happens, maybe see what it's like on an out-breath to say inwardly to yourself, no action needed right now. No action needed in this moment. No action needed right now. And the aim here is not to make ourselves passive or never to respond wisely, but just to let go of all the ways in which the mind, the brain, keeps us over busy. The mind gets very noisy and we can hardly choose the wisest action for actions coming up that we're never likely to take. And so sitting here and using just this little stretch of silence to, to practice this by yourself. And then as this short meditation comes to an end, just coming back to the feet on the floor. A sense of anchoring your attention and knowing that at any time when you're feeling restless, when calm seems to elude you, you can bring your attention to the feet on the floor as a sense of grounding yourself. sense of coming home to the body. And this can bring its own moment of calm before you resume the activities of your day. And then when you're ready, beginning to move fingers and toes and letting your eyes open if they've been closed and taking in your surroundings once again. I'm glad you guys did that. Um, quite profound, the, the no action and the, you described it and maybe you programmed in, but I literally felt my shoulders drop 
and the tension just sort of damp out. Um, how, because you your your new course is about um, deeper mindfulness, and you talk about this feeling tone. Can you describe what feeling tone is to us? So feeling tone is that very basic sense of pleasantness or unpleasantness that comes with every moment of experience, if we notice it. So if you just look around the room of where you are now, you'll see some things that, you know, you find, you know, pleasant. That might be a nice photograph, remember the family, or, or maybe something you meant to clear up two or three weeks ago, maybe two or three years ago, and you think, mm, yeah, not, not good. And just a subtle sense of pleasantness or unpleasantness. Or if you take some milk out the fridge and it's gone a bit sour, unpleasant. If you're walking down the street and a, a little child walking towards you smiles at you, maybe pleasant. See some walk and then walk a bit further, there's a garbage can has fallen over and it's blowing around the street, unpleasant. Now, every moment of our life, every sensation that comes to the body, sights of the eyes, noises, sounds, thoughts, they all got this just subtle sense, sometimes very obvious, not so subtle, but pleasantness or unpleasantness. And if we're not aware of that, it presses our buttons. It pushes and pulls us around. Our mood begins to go down or begins to go up. And we're not quite sure why. So feeling tone is the tipping point. It's the tipping point for our emotions, for our thoughts, for our impulses. And uh, uh, in mindfulness, virtually every eight-week course that anybody's ever done the feeling tone is present, but it's implicit. So there are, you know, you get to know about pleasantness or unpleasant. You might taste a raisin or a piece of orange or something and suddenly see it or taste it as if for the first time in your course. Um, and you will you'll, uh, uh, notice more, you're trained to notice more pleasant activities around and pleasant things that you do, pleasant moments, unpleasant moments. But... There's no meditation that focuses directly on this very tipping point. And so in our Feeling Tone program, in the Deeper Mindfulness uh, book that came out earlier this year, um, we're training people, we're doing grounding practices like the one we've just done, um, we, in order to stabilise the mind. We're doing practices to gradually increase the sense of the mind is doing what it does, and it's not an enemy, it's your friend. But if you're meditating, it can feel like an enemy when it bombards you with stuff. But actually, it's, it's really worth thanking the mind and seeing how that feels. And then we take people up on the journey to notice their feeling tones, pleasant, unpleasant, or somewhere in between. Tuning people in to notice them in the world at large, through their senses, through the sights, sounds, tastes, but also through sitting there noticing how is the body right now? Where in the body does it feel maybe uh, pleasant where in the body does it feel unpleasant so people begin to tune into the simplicity of pleasantness unpleasantness then when in the middle of the night you can't sleep instead of actually thinking right i must solve this problem in order i go to sleep what people realize is they can just say to themselves this being awake is unpleasant or this thought stream it's unpleasant and in that cutting through the complexity to the simplicity of pleasantness or unpleasantness, people discover that they're able then to say, it's okay not to like this. It's unpleasant. Why should I like it? The task here is not to like what's not likable, but just to say, it's okay not to like it. 
and the, so the deeper mindfulness unfolds the um, it's called the, the feeling tone is actually the second foundation of mindfulness in the Buddhist tradition it's the second foundation of mindfulness but it's skated over quite quickly it's in the background to all mindfulness but what we're doing here is offering a way of just pausing to really notice the second foundation of mindfulness using that as a gateway to deepen and sustain the mindfulness practice and the no action needed actually comes from week five of that program because when you've looked at the feeling tone and sensed it and you've given yourself permission to feel it to to notice its messages then is a really good time to actually notice also that a lot of the time when we react when we have our buttons pressed what actually happens is a lot of action starts up you know and it's sort of it, it and at that time having noticed it there's a sense of ah oh, okay no action needs right now let's let the wise action shine through rather than get completely caught up in in irrelevant actions that we're never gonna gonna need and the thing i think um the really I noticed probably in our meditation was oftentimes when I'm sitting, maybe this is just because of my awareness from having podcasted so much around trauma and nervous system and activation and stuff like that. And, you know, being in your sympathetic and parasympathetic is a lot of times when I sit down for mindfulness is when I feel jacked, you know, it's like in usually I've got a morning practice, um, but usually in the evening, like in the afternoons, if I'm sitting down, it's because I feel jacked. <laughs> it's like something's come up and it's like I can tell like my, my mind is clicking through frames way too fast right now. I just need a moment to decompress. And when I sit down, exactly how you described that the bombardment is very in effect. Um, and what I noticed is it's almost like a, I don't, I'm, I'm conscious to use the word hack, but it, was, it did feel like a bit of a hack because allowing myself to go no action needed, it dropped me into um, the, the 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 sympathy. Like my, I just I just na- I just naturally just sunk in so much better into the relaxed um, state of mind because it was yeah I think I normally come to that practice in the afternoon to sort of allow myself to just decompress, but there's still everything that I'm trying to do is still present in mind, and I'm doing all the reps. But giving yourself that mantra to not having to do that allows you to debase um, and free fall a little bit better back into your being. Um, I think that's a really important observation, actually, Amit. I think it's really important because, yeah, it does feel like a bit of a hack. Um, but what's actually going on when we can't, when we just can't let go of um, a sort of problem is the mind's getting into its problem-solving mode and it's been trained not to let go of a problem until it solved it, you know. Um, and and of course, if you have one problem, that's one thing. But if you have 103 problems going through on your mind at the same time, then your mind is generating possible solutions and counterfactuals to everything. The wonderful thing about the human mind is we know what's happened to m- yesterday, but we know what might have happened yesterday. All the things we didn't choose to do are almost as present to us sometimes as things we did do. Similarly about the future, we have a certain future which is going to be our future course. But we can also consider all the different futures we might have, all the things we might do tomorrow. Put those together and you, you, you rapidly get into huge combinations, permutations of your life, all of which are present to you because we can represent our lives in this extraordinary mind that we've got. So um, each one is generating possible actions, possible plans. And uh, it's amazing the mind can, can, can cope. So a way of actually cutting through this 
by saying, okay, this thought stream is just unpleasant. It's okay not to like it. Yeah, it means that the cache, the, the thing we've been holding in memory to try and solve it, sort of just dissolves. And when we need it, it will come back. That's the discovery. It's not, you no, know, it doesn't blank things out and blank the mind. When we need it, it will come back. But it's important. As you said yourself, if it's important, it will come back. But right then, it's getting entangled. And, and the basic idea of, of, of the Buddhist practice was this unbinding, a sort of a loosening, and a sort of cooling off. So, and and what you're reporting there, the, the the hacking is actually a cooling. It's a it's a moment of awakening, a moment a moment where there's an unbinding and a, a, an uncoupling of of all this entangled stuff, and and it's a genuine thing. This the sense of ah, oh, is a, is a genuine experience, and and by practicing a little bit each day, it's just. Uh, means that it's, we're slightly more likely as we go about our life to notice ourselves getting entangled and to notice that right now we may not need to take action. Right now we might need not to say that word or that phrase that comes to mind, that word of anger or something which we can't take back. Um, and it's uh, okay, silence is fine. Not doing anything is fine for right now. Let's pause, make a choice out of a wider space. And that's I think many people find it mysterious, but also incredibly powerful. I can see the power in it. I um, you might find this funny. <laughs> I had this realization. Typical engineer, um, very problem-solving mind over here, and I think all minds are good problem solvers. But as an engineer, I think it's um, it's the hat we wear. It's literally hard hat and spanner, <laughs> right? It's like, <laughs> and uh, the realization I had one day was, you know, my mind's an amazing problem solver, but if left unchecked, it just quarries out looking for problems to solve. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely, it is extraordinary. And you notice that in meditation more than anything else. You know, once it's told you about all the emails you've forgotten about, it'll then tell you about things from last week. And indeed, an email you forgot to send six weeks ago can come up in your meditation. Um, and if and if when it's finished with that, it'll come up with people that you know you haven't quite resolved a relationship with from ten years ago. I mean, and then it'll start quarrying around for things. And of course, if you're sad at the moment, it'll dig up things that even aren't there. You know, people are still must be resenting me because of this you know well how how on earth do we know but the mind certainly creates a, a film a narrative in which you are when you're depressed the narrative is always about you're the loser you're the failure you're no good and uh, that's what depression is that you know that in when the mind gets in like that it's it's not telling you the truth of things depression is really good at at, at we say in frantic world, the, it's, a, it's a rumor mill. You know, rumors spread because there's a, like something. Oh yeah, that's that's got to be true. And and when sad mood comes with a, a negative thought, they fuse together and reinforce each other. Yeah. It becomes almost like a self fulfilling prophecy. In it some does, way, doesn't it? it like, does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't go out because you think people don't want to see me, so you stay in. And you know, it's a, it's you don't see so many people. And it's really hard to to, um, to to reclaim your life when you've been doing that for a while. One of the things that we discovered when we were doing the research for our new book was that there's this phenomenon called distraction devaluation, which is 
a phenomenon whereby in order to focus on one thing, um, you tend to have to inhibit the other things. I mean, it's a very obvious experiment in which you get people to do a task on the computer. They're busy doing the task, but you give them distractors that they've got to ignore. And if they're going to do the task well, they've got to ignore what's going on. Some things are in the periphery, you know, then they're far away. Some things are quite close to the task that you're doing. And so you've really got to inhibit those. Now, interestingly, what the material that these psychologists used that you had to ignore were either common objects, like things you'd see in the supermarket, or they were faces of real people. Right? After the experiment, they gave them a whole long list of pictures of common objects that you might find in the supermarket, some of which had been in the experiment and others which hadn't. And they gave them big lists of little photographs in, you know, of, of, photo of, of people, some of which had been in the experiment, others were new. And guess what? The objects and the people that had been distractors in that experiment were disliked more than the other things. So, so what had happened is because you had to push them away, they had become devalued. You, it had actually changed their affective valence. And the one that, that they just asked, what did, you know, what's about the liking for these objects, for the people, it's, it's a bit complex to say, is this person, do you like this person? Because it might be an attractive woman or attractive man. And so, so what they said is, do you think this person is trustworthy? And the, the photo of people that had been distractors in the experiment were rated as less trustworthy. So, uh, and this phenomenon is called distraction devaluation. And what it and, and it's the it's the devaluing of things that would normally get in the way of what you're trying to do. Now think about this: if you've had a you know in the days when we had libraries and you could borrow library books, right? Um, you'd often perhaps not take the library book back; it would just be left there on the on the shelf by the door. And every oh, time you go out, library you fees. Library <laughs> yes. book, and you say, "Oh no, I haven't got time now," so you have to ignore the library book. So then the tomorrow comes. Oh, no, I'm too busy doing it. I can't, I can't, you know. So day after day after day, you're inhibiting, you're pushing away the library book. And the library book starts to acquire a taste. It actually gets devalued. You begin to hate the library book. And you think, my God, you know, the library book, the poor thing's been sitting there. It's done nothing to deserve your hate. But for some reason, it's now become the horrible, pesky library book, you know. So no wonder it's hard to take back, even if you've paid the fine online already. It's hard to take back because it's not neutral anymore. It's acquired a sort of negative thing. And so it's not surprising that when you're depressed, um, everything is a distraction. Because what you want to do when you're depressed is sort yourself out. Yeah? That's your big project. Your big project is is worrying and brooding and ruminating about what can I do about the fact that I'm a failure, I've got no friends, I'm useless, everything. So if somebody says, oh, come out for a drink. No, 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 I don't want to. It's a distraction. So you begin to just take to inhibit everything that is not relevant to the sense of sorting yourself out. It's amazing. So you, you, get, you give up your lifelines. You give up your lifelines because it's not relevant to your main project. And I mean, we all know that when we've got a big project on, you have to you, you have to damp down other things. So, um, but once you finish the project, hopefully they come back. But if the dampening has been too effective, you feel a bit mm, a bit lost. 
because you don't want to go out anymore because your, your, your dampening has been too effective. So these are ways in which the mind, which is designed to help you focus on one thing by dampening down other things, which is a good quality of the mind, sometimes doesn't serve you very well. And, and the theme of all our work in mindfulness is to demonstrate that nothing's gone wrong when you're depressed. The mind is really trying its best to help, but it's backfiring. And so, you know, there's nothing abnormal. It's just, you know, the, the wrong tool has volunteered for the job. And we need to then, to, the insight you get from mindfulness is just saying, oh, that's the tool I need right now, not that one. And, and gradually get more, more tools in the toolkit and um, the insight into what you really need right now. What's the best gift you can give to yourself? Yeah, and I love I love that toolkit um, metaphor as well because recognizing even just the, the negative thoughts that you described, and I think the devaluation thing you just described is quite profound because I'm thinking about a couple of people that I coach right now, and they're admittedly workaholics and they have challenges with family, and I can sort of see that they've you know their mind is focused so much on work that the family thing is sort of that's in the way you know not yeah, in the way absolutely. Uh, absolutely. you know that's a micro that's a sorry that's a macro sorry version of that yeah 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 you begin to uh, resent the interference don't you you begin to resent it yeah. and actually at least just knowing that that's a normal aspect of the mind is just a little more forgiving yeah yeah and that's the piece I was going to say is like, I now I find myself saying this, oh yeah, that's my mind doing its thing, you know, like, because so, when it's like, it's almost like, you know, you mentioned the, the, the thoughts before and the mind gets a lot of them. And I pictured this, um, this English bulldog with like, <laughs> like a thousand bones around him and he just could chew on any, sometimes my mind feels like that. And it's just like all these thoughts and he just wants to, and it's like, yep. And that's just the mind doing its thing. Like, you know, just the mind doing its thing. This particular and, and moment, so. It does. It's worth knowing as well that when, when we stop, it, the mind doing its thing can be quite addictive. So when we stop and eventually take a break from our screens and our phones, it's really, really hard not to reach for the phone, to want to get back to the screen, to check things out and so on. And so gradually what people are actually now doing, aren't they, is, 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 is companies and firms are now beginning to institute little regulations about no emails between seven and seven. If you want to do your emails late at night, well, fair enough, but you don't send them out anymore. You just store them up so they send automatically at eight, nine in the morning. So that, and that more and more firms, I was um, at the Central Bank in Frankfurt, a European Central Bank a few years ago, and one of the divisions there had just made this rule, you know, we're we're just going to keep office hours and we're not going to send emails and expect a response, you know. And I think we gradually are getting some sense of um, sort of mental hygiene, of, of actually um, uh, setting limits and just getting used to those limits, but realising that limits can feel very <sighs> frustrating until you've got over five or ten minutes of, oh, I want to check, I want to check gradually but you've got to realize it's a bit like going cold turkey from a drug you really are having to break this mini addiction day in day out and that's true of all of us you know all of us tend to find ourselves scrolling on the phone you know doom scrolling at night and um and 
to realize earlier that that's happening, to put it away, and then to bear that next two minutes of, ah, I want to get back on it. And then that will go, it will go. Um, and then we'll be able to make a decision again based on whether we really want to, to answer messages or check it rather than just being addicted to get back to it. Question then is the mental hygiene question. I think that's a really profound um, concept just to introduce into the frame, actually. Um, mental hygiene, um, what does that mean for those that are tuning into that concept for the first time? I think one of the things is this business about setting limits. So one, one idea that is now very commonly used is to, is to make an appointment with yourself at some point during the week. So you actually put your, your own name in the diary and then you keep that as uh, sacrosanct as it would be if it was a good friend or if it was uh, your boss. Um, and uh, there were times when I was moving from a research job in Cambridge to a place in Bangor um, where I knew I'd be incredibly busy because it was a lot more administration that I'd been used to. And I remember a good uh, wise colleague saying, blank out a whole day for your research for yourself and keep it completely free and just say no I'm sorry I'm already busy that day because if somebody wants to make an appointment and you say I'm sorry I can't I can't make it they're not going to say are you sure you can't make it they're actually going to say okay fine, fine. can you make next week can you make Tuesday so uh, if, if blanking out a day blanking out an hour just decide each each time so that's one thing um Getting out in nature is something that we tell ourselves we'll do, but most of us don't do it as much as we as good. Things like parking the car deliberately a bit further away, rather than trying to get really close to where we work so that we only have to walk five yards. You know, why not five minutes? So that actually it makes a sense of separation. Um, what about at the end of the day, doing a short sitting where you just sit for a while on the way home on a commute, maybe on the bus or whatever, where you actually deliberately let go of what you have been doing. Imagine the people you're going to spend the evening with, family, friends, whatever, or even yourself, and, and hold them in mind in a sort of kindly way. And so deliberately let go and then say, I'm changing mode. So it's an active changing mode, saying I'm putting that on one side and I'll pick it up next to eight o'clock tomorrow, seven o'clock tomorrow. But for now, I'm going to pay all my attention to whoever I'm going to spend the evening with. It might be a partner. It might be a parent. It might be a child. It might be yourself. But whatever it is, setting that aside. Um, so these are things that we can do um, that I think are uh, a way of befriending our minds and bodies, of being our best friend to ourselves. And funnily enough, when people do that, other people say, oh, you're in an awful good mood these days. And they want to they want to make time to be with you rather than working around the edges of you and think, oh, no, you know, I don't open my mouth because what, what would Mark say? What would Amrit say? You know, they're obviously in a mood. So the sense of just just listening, I mean, that's the other, that's the other thing. Um, most of us, I feel, well, me, I know it's true of me, I spend a lot of my time on transmit instead of receive. 
and just to spend more time listening and receiving and not trying to solve other people's problems. Most people, when they talk to you, don't want you to say, well, I used to have that problem. Yes, what I found helpful was A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I. And you see the person's eyes glazing over. And all they wanted to do was <laughs> to put in. You know? And uh, so the sense of receiving, receiving what people have to give rather than being on transmit and imagining that we just have to solve a problem. All of these things are well known. They're rare in our wisdom traditions. They're rare in our self-help books. They're rare in our mindfulness courses. It's actually finding a way to implement them. You know, being mindful is not difficult. Christina Feldman said, mindfulness teacher Christina Feldman said once, you know, being mindful is not difficult. Remembering to be mindful is really hard. Wow. You mentioned loosely that there was um, the, well, what I love the most about what you're saying is I think calmness and wisdom are two things that we often attribute to mindfulness and meditation, but the kindness and the self-kindness piece is, you know, the one that sort of <laughs> is, I don't want to say forgotten about, but I think it's appropriate to use the word forgotten, seeing as you just mentioned the quote where it's, you know, remembering to be mindful <laughs> is hard. But, um, yeah, the other question I had was um, around, it's a, it's a deeper conversation, but I just wanted to touch base because you found in your work that previously people, when they were encountering um, depression, let's say in the 60s, it was more around their midlife that this was happening. Um, whereas now it seems to be happening earlier and earlier and earlier. Um, can you, I know we don't have much time left, but I think just an opportunity for you to, yeah, just describe the phenomenon and what you think might be at the heart of that phenomenon. Yeah, so this came out of epidemiological work, um, looking at the prevalence rates of people born in 1900, 1910, 1920, 1930. And often people born at the turn of the previous century, they would get depressed at some point in their life, but it often was in their 50s and 60s. As we went through the centuries, people got depressed about a decade earlier every decade. So by the time we got into the 70s and 80s, people were getting depressed in their 20s, and then in the 80s, 90s, people get depressed in their teens. And you can check this out in clinically. We've done it to other people have done it by checking out people come for help with therapy now in their 30s and 40s. When did they first get depressed? It tended to be in their teens. And it's now found that um, by the age of 24, 75% of people who are ever going to get depressed in their life have already been depressed at least once. So... The, the, the rates of depression after the mid-20s of a new depression, when you've never been depressed before, is quite rare. Most depression that people experience in their adult life is a reactivation of a previous episode. Something happens, you get sad, and the sadness activates all those negative thoughts and feelings you had in that previous episode. And it comes roaring back. So and now nobody really understands why there's been that change. It started happening way before computers, way before screens, way before TV, way before iPhones were invented. So we can't blame the pace that's created by our screens and by mobile phones and, and smartphones. It was happening before that. Of course, it may well be that smartphones means that you know uh, we easily get distracted. But on the other hand, smartphones are also a major way of communicating with people. 
and in general they seem to have as many benefits as they have uh, disbenefits so we can't blame this new technology I think some people say it's because of um, uh, the uh, relationship between uh, work I mean how, how meaningful work is um, and the gradual industrialization of work and the pressure of work over throughout the 20th century um, the sense of um, education being a really important thing for school kids and and but also in many countries education has come with an enormous amount of pressure of success and failure pressure and uh, and the success and failure pressure means that a lot of uh, of people earlier and earlier are feeling the sense of um, the high cost of failure um, you know, or, or trying to persuade it, and it takes time to realize that a lot of these thoughts about failure are actually um, uh, they're giving extra pressure that the mind was never designed to, to, to take. But it's not certain, it's not certain, people don't really understand. But the phenomena itself of early onset is very big. So, in a recent work that we did of 28,000 children in the UK, we looked at their depression rate. About 33% of kids, and these were 12 and 13 year olds, 11, 12, 13 year olds, um, were uh, suffering from something you'd say was high risk of depression uh, on the depression scale. And that is quite alarming statistic. And um, uh, it's important we do offer whatever help we can give and not just say, oh, well, they're just, they're just making it up. They're not really depressed. I think many of them are. And, and are suffering uh, quite badly, really. Thank you so much for highlighting that, because, yeah, I think it is an important conversation to have, especially, yeah, I just feel like it is easy when you're an adult to sort of look down and just say, oh, you know, how much of the world do you really know? <laughs> you know, you don't deserve um, to feel that way. <laughs> it's like, that's, you know, it's perpetuates the problem in many ways yeah thank you for for highlighting that and um last question was around um yeah you mentioned your the journey through i guess the the mindfulness that you've been taking you know and the, um, the mindfulness-based stress reduction the cognitive therapy then um finding peace and now uh, the deeper emotions um yeah you mentioned so far you know the work has kind of been it's transitioning through um the buddhist work um you know uh i guess the high level question was how many pillars are there in mindfulness is there four in um in the buddhist philosophy and then also there's the foundations of mindfulness yeah yep and in um, terms of the foundations well, of mindfulness are, in the original text yeah so and what are they um and then also just quickly well, the okay. um yeah. Are you growing into anything in your science more than what is, or are we growing into understanding the ancient study better? I think it's both, in fact. There's, there's, we're, we're discovering how relevant these ancient wisdom traditions are. And it's not just in Buddhism, of course, it then influenced the Greek philosophers in some ways, that, and the Greek philosophers influenced Christian philosophers and the early monks and the monastic tradition so you get in 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 most big world religions contemplative traditions as said especially in the monasteries um this sense of 
cultivating silence, cultivating stillness, cultivating attentive presence, noticing what thoughts come and allowing them to go as part of all these traditions. And um, But what research, modern research can do is put more flesh on the bone and make it available to the people who aren't ever going to find this through uh, a monastery, they're not going to find it through religion or faith because um, they're not interested in, in that sort of lifestyle or that sort of belief system. Um, but it turns out that if you do the brain science, if you do the cognitive psychology, you get um, modern analogues of ancient wisdom. Uh, I mean, that distraction devaluation, for example, or the sense of actions, the brain just wanting to generate actions all the time. Well, it turns out that that's in the Buddhist tradition too. Um, the sense of the first foundation of mindfulness and the four original foundations of mindfulness, the body is the first one, so learning how to be with the body, learning from the body. The second one is feeling tone or Vedana as it's called in the traditions, the feeling tone. The third one is, is mental states, um, the sort of mooded mind states that, that have this constellation of, of, that come in a whole configuration. And the fourth foundation is the sort of hindrances on the path and the, the factors of enlightenment on the path. In other words, what, what helps us on the path, what hinders us on the path, and sometimes called the dharmas, the, the way things are, the teachings. And these are the four foundations of mindfulness. Um, we, um, most mindfulness courses do one, three, and four pretty well. Number two is what we're examining now, the Vedana, the, the feeling tone. Um, and when I talked earlier about all of these are helping to, to cultivate three things, um, this, the, the, the calmness and groundedness, the sense of kindness and the sense of insight and wisdom, um, all of the foundations do that. Um, the other word for foundations is just ways of establishing. What are different ways of establishing mindfulness? So that's what the four foundations do. They are ways of establishing mindfulness through the body, through the feeling tone through looking at, at mind states, through the knowing the hindrances and the factors that are going to help us in the practice of awakening. So um, the research, however, it's extraordinary that I don't think I know of any research when people have looked at these ancient wisdom, ancient knowledge that has found it not to be true. Um, uh, but we need to do it for a, a modern, secular, mainstream audience. It's no point talking about, if you look at the original Buddhist texts, they're quite obscure, some of them, and um, they don't use language that most people would spend a long time reading. But, but the scholars who are able to interpret them for us and explain them to us um, are, are revealing extraordinary hypotheses and the main thrust of the Buddhist teaching, some people say his very last words were, go out and find out for yourself. Go out and, it's your work. You know, you need to discover this for yourself. This sense of, I could teach you, I could tell you all these things, but you need to. And that points to the idea of knowing, a direct experiential knowing. Um, and that's what, that's why we don't just write books and, and John Kabat-Zinn doesn't write books and we don't we have CDs downloads whatever it is that allow people to actually do the practice 10 minutes 20 minutes 30 minutes so for example on our latest book 
um, we have a 10-minute version, a 20-minute version, or a 30-minute version of every every practice, so that people can can choose what is going to work for them for their lifestyle, and um, and then people can experience it for themselves and make up their own mind. It's not about me telling people. It's actually offering people something they can try and then see for themselves. I'm going to put a link to the books and the courses in the show notes below for those that want to check out more. Um, but for people, anything that you would like to share with the audience, obviously, um, yeah, deeper mindfulness is probably very alive in your heart and in your world at the moment. Um, so that will be in the show notes below. Is that the best thing to share with the audience if they're looking to dive deeper into your work at the moment? I think it's a good start because it is the most recent book. So it gives the most recent science. And the science is really fascinating. What's happened in the last 10 years is mind blowing. Um, and the way in which it sort of it, unintended sorry <laughs> the way it shows us exactly how the mind predicts from moment to moment what's going to happen in order to help us so we don't have to to take in every single piece of data around there in the world which would just be too too overwhelming and how the mind just it does it by predicting what's going to happen and unless we get a good contradiction from the actual data then our experience of the world moment by moment is actually our predictions, not necessarily what we're taking in through the eyes and ears, nose, mouth and so on. And this then, it, it sets the scene for being able to um, really look and hang out with our own mind and body frame by frame. The analogy there being, you know, the, those old photographers that used to, to wonder whether horses, when they galloped, did they ever at any point float? Did the, all the hooves come off the ground at the same time? And Edward Maybridge was the first photographer in 1870-something that actually discovered by putting 12 cameras on a race course that, yes, in one of those frames, out of 12, the horse floats, right, when they gallop. And uh, it was an amazing discovery. But only, you can only see that by looking frame by frame. So there are some things in your mind that you can only see by looking frame by frame. and you know, these feeling tones and the way that our mind unfolds things, thoughts, feelings, body sensations. You look at it frame by frame, you start discovering extraordinary things. And I found myself really excited about, about what the research is telling us now. And uh, that's what I hope to pass on to others, that sense of excitement and curiosity. Thank you so much. And Mark, I want to thank you for your time here today. But It'd be remiss of me to not acknowledge just, you know, there are very few people that have put this much time, energy, their life's work stands on the shoulders of a particular body of an entire thing that they've dedicated themselves to. You know, you've given so much of yourself to mindfulness and, yeah, I really just want to acknowledge you for the today's conversation, you know, in some ways just scratches the surface, but in other ways also stands on the shoulders of all that work that you've put in. Um, into this body of work so I just really want to honour and acknowledge you for the path that you're on and the gifts that you continue to share with the world thank you so much thanks so much for inviting me thank you so much for tuning in to this amazing episode of the Inspired Evolution without you the Inspired Evolution tribe this podcast would not be what it is today 
Thank you so much for your love and your support. Thank you so much for being so inspired to evolve. It's truly inspiring. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe to the Inspired Evolution on YouTube, the home of the Inspired Evolution's video podcast. We release inspiring conversations such as this every week, along with guided meditations and empowering insights all designed to help you grow and evolve. Honestly, your subscription on YouTube to the channel helps us out a great deal. And one of the other benefits, if you're having any insights or shifts from these episodes that you want to chat about, or if you'd like to leave myself or the guest a message, please do so in the comments on YouTube. I truly look forward to hearing from you. And as always, Tribe, remember to stay inspired and keep evolving. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.